0: would like. Rising 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 21. A couple of announcements. Prayer tomorrow morning, 7 to 7.30. I invite you to come to that. If you want to see something change in your life, we'd invite you to join us tomorrow morning at 7. Uh, next Sunday, we've got a welcome reception that's at 7.30. Two, two groups for that. One, if you're thinking Stonebridge might be your church. We might be your people and you've never been to one. We would invite you to come. It's a great chance to hear a little bit about the vision for the church and kind of where we're headed. You can ask any questions that you would like. Um, Meet the staff and the leadership team. And also, if if, if we don't know each other, I would love for you to come. If you feel like Stonebridge is your family and you and I have never really gotten to meet, I would love for you to come. It's difficult out there in the lobby to try to make connections with folks. So I'd invite you to come. Uh, if that, for that reason as well, just to give me a chance to get to know you. And then on Friday, August 9th, at 6 o'clock, 6 to 8, we'll have a family, Stonebridge family cookout at Laurel Park. It's our back-to-school deal. We do it every year. We'll pray for students and teachers and everybody involved in the educational piece of things. Uh, we'll have some jumpy deals, hamburgers and hot dogs, you bring a side uh, it's a lot of fun, so we invite you to come um, Friday, August 9th from 6 to 8. You can sign up out front to make sure we don't just have 17 bags of chips, that we've got a variety. Uh, and one of the, oh, building, the building. some of you have asked, it's coming along. We should have the final permits for all of the up-the-street stuff this week. And they're starting upstairs. Many of you have never even been up there. Uh, it's 162A is the address otherwise known as the creepy dress shop so that's we have we have half of that and we're going to try to make it less creepy over the course of the next month the hope is by august 16th the plan is by august 16th for that to be all of that stuff to be completely done and usable and that will be primarily student space children's space and then small groups during the week so um, y'all feel free during the week if you want to stop in and Walk around, you can, and hopefully we'll have some type of open house deal in the middle of August. In terms of starting the work down here, my hope is that we can start in September. We'll see if we can or can't. Uh, that's our plan and the money. Uh, it seems to be coming in, so thanks. We've we've been able to pay for the contractor as we've needed to. So uh, if you've committed to, to give money, we'd encourage you to continue to do that. Just write building in the memo line. It helps us keep track. So thank you all for your participation. If you have any questions, you can ask me or uh, Poor is actually managing that process for us. He can give you more uh, details. All right, Matthew 21. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. He rides into Jerusalem on the donkey on Sunday, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. He's saying, hey, I'm the king and here I am. Goes straight to the temple and cleanses it. We looked at that last week. Turns over the tables of the money changers. Drives out everybody who's buying and selling. Says, y'all, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Y'all have made it a den of robbers. Then he goes home, spends the night, comes back on Monday morning. He curses this fig tree on the way to the temple. We looked at that last week as well. Both the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree are indictments against the religious leaders. He's saying, y'all aren't bearing fruit. And like this fig tree isn't bearing fruit, it's going to be cursed. And just like this, y'all are not... uh, The temple is not functioning the way God intended it it to be, and that's why I've had to cleanse it. And so we pick up in verse 23. So this is Monday morning. Jesus has just cursed the fig tree. He enters the temple courts. While he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, "I, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism or John's ministry, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask them, why didn't you believe him? And if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So their question is, who gave you the right to do what you just did in the temple? Remember we said last week, the temple authorities were the one that set all that stuff up. They're the ones that set up this place for people to buy sacrificial animals. They're the ones that set up these places for people to exchange their money for the local currency. In the te- they're the ones that did that. They're in charge and they did it and so they want to know, hey, who gave, gave you the right to come in and upset everything? It'd be like if somebody came in here and started throwing things around, we may say, hey, what, who, who are you and who gives you the right to come in and do this stuff in our space? And that's what the temple leaders want to know. Now, they don't, they don't actually want to know the answer to the question. They're trying to trap Jesus, they're not interested in the truth, and he knows that, and so he, as he always does, responds to a question with a question. And what he wants to know from them is, all right, I'll tell you who's given me authority if you could tell me who gave it to John, the implication being it's the same person. God's given us both authority, and the Pharisees recognize that's a trap, and so they don't answer. They don't want to say, well, John's authority wasn't from heaven, it was just him, he just had authority from, from human because then the people will be upset because they all saw John as a prophet. If the Pharisees say, hey, John's John's authority, his ministry comes from God, well, John spoke very highly of Jesus. He said, here's this guy his sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He recognized him as the Messiah and this key piece in what God was doing in the world. And so if they say, well, John's authority came from God, then Jesus is going to say, well, how come you didn't listen to what he said about me? So they recognize what Jesus is doing as well, and so they say, well, we're not going to play either. And so they don't answer him. He doesn't answer them, and they don't answer him. And so he replies to them further with this parable, verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. I won't, he answered. But later he changed his mind, or repented is actually the word, and he went. Then the father went to the other and said the same thing. He, he answered, this son said, I will, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. And that's, that's correct. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So he's making a comparison here. He's saying, two sons. One says no and then is obedient. The other says yes and then, is diso- and then is disobedient. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are like the first son. They've been living these lives of sinful rebellion towards the Lord. They hear the message of John and the message of Jesus and they repent and kind of get on the right road. They're like the first son. They started off rebelling against God but then when they heard the truth, they heard this, the gospel, they heard this invitation to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they responded to it. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, are like the second son. They started off well. I don't know, I'm not familiar with whatever ceremonies there were to become a, a religious leader, but I'm sure they made some commitments and some vows and some promises and some oaths, and they said, we're going to do all these things. They started well. They said, yeah, we're going to do what you want, God. And then their life, though, doesn't indicate that judging by the fact that they didn't respond positively to John, and they're trying to figure out how to arrest and kill Jesus. Not, not good things for them. And so what Jesus is saying, the Pharisees, they understand the point of the parable. They say the first son is the righteous son, which is correct. They just don't get that they're actually the second son. They can't see that about themselves. What they would say is we're ones who said yes from the beginning, and we've been faithful all the way along. Now, for us, I think looking at that parable, a couple of things. If you've been, if you become a Christian in the last two hundred years, and if you're a Christian, that's happened for you in the last two hundred years, um, you've prayed this. You most likely prayed something along these lines: "God, I confess that I'm a sinner, and I repent of my sins, and Jesus, ask you to forgive me of my sins and to come into my heart and be the Lord of my life." Most likely, you've prayed something along those lines. It's the sinner's prayer. We've all prayed that, and we've all. That's what we've heard. Come forward at the end of the service and we'll pray that and maybe we'll baptize you or something like that. In the Bible Belt, if you were to just do a survey of the people in your neighborhood or the people in your office who were raised in the South, and you asked how many of them have prayed that prayer, it's going to be a big number. A a ton of them, 80%, a ton of those guys have prayed that prayer. And the issue, I think, it's a wonderful prayer. If you come forward today and say, hey, I'm ready, I'm going to lead you in a prayer like that. But the issue for us is in the culture that we live in, the sinner's prayer has created a whole bunch of second sons. People who have said initially at some point when they were 8 or 10 or 12 or 25, whenever they've said it, they've prayed this prayer, they've made this commitment and said, well, I'm in. I'm saved by this prayer that I prayed. And so I can kind of do whatever I want. And I'm good. And that's not what this parable says. What it says is, God is more concerned with obedience than he is with, with promises that we make to be obedient. What he's looking for is people who actually follow through. People who actually follow after him. That's what Jesus said, right? That was the invitation. Come and follow me. This idea of continual action of tracking with him over time. And again, in the, in the religious culture that we live in, in the Bible Belt, there's a whole lot of people who've prayed a prayer at some point in their life who are under the false assumption that they're okay. And according to this parable, they're not okay at all. George Barney, he's a, he's a researcher, statistician, pollster. He does all this stuff. This is from 19, or excuse me, from 2011. 3% of self-identified Christians, so that's people who would say, raise my hand, check the box, I'm a Christian, have come to, quote, the places where they've surrendered control of their life to God, submitted to His will for their life, and devoted themselves to loving and serving God and other people. 3%. That's not good. I don't know what the other 97% of self-identified Christians think it means to be a Christian. If it doesn't mean surrendering control of their life to God, submitting to His will, or loving and serving Him and other people. I'm not certain what's left at that point. Going to church, I guess, or... I don't know. It, there's, there's not a lot. It's difficult to think. That's only 3% of the people who would say I'm a Christian say, yeah, that's true of me. That's a whole lot of second sons, in my opinion. That's a lot of people who, at some point, they made some commitment or some promise, or they prayed some prayer, they've had some water dumped on their head, or something happened at some point along the way that made them think, hey, I've got the membership card now. And so I can do whatever I want. And according to this parable, and to me, according to the entire teaching of the New Testament, it's not, that's dangerous ground to stand on. To say, I've asked Jesus into my heart, which is wonderful. And so now I'm going to kind of go off and do what I want without really any regard to how he would have me live. So if you would say this morning, I'm kind of like a second son. I made a commitment at some point. And I'm just banking on that prayer that I prayed. Your Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says it's by grace we've been saved through faith. And you're saying it's by grace I've been saved through this prayer that I prayed a long time ago. And that's what's going to get me through. My encouragement to you is to reevaluate that. And say, if you're the second son, that's not a good situation. Jesus is looking for us to align our lives with him. Again, this whole idea of following him means actually following him. If he were to say to David, follow me, Jesus is actually here. He walked a thousand miles during his three years. And if David says, sure, I'm going to follow you. And he sits in that chair, he's going to get left behind pretty quick. There's this understanding that you're actually going to follow him. Now, if you're a first son, if you would say, I'm not, I said no from the beginning. I've been resisting from the beginning. I've been rejecting from the beginning, there's great news for you. It's never too late. As long as you're breathing, there's an opportunity for you to have a change of heart, to have a change of mind, to repent, and to recognize, you know what? I need a savior. I can't keep doing this on my own. I've got this weight of guilt and I can't get rid of it. I've got I, I need I need rescuing. Great news for you. If you're a first son this morning, if you're someone who's pushed back and pushed back. And pushed back. What you need to hear from this first parable is. It's that simple. Have a change of heart. Have a change of mind. Repent. Recognize your situation. I'm lost. I'm needy. I'm helpless. And I need a savior. I need rescuing. You throw your hand up in the air. And he's coming quickly. To save you. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a well around it. Dug a wine press in it. And built a watchtower. God is the landowner. He rented the vineyard to some farmers. In this application, the farmers are the Jewish religious leaders. And he went away on a journey. When harvest time approached, he sent his servants. So those are the Old Testament prophets and the messengers to these tenants. To collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And they treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son, that's Jesus. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the man, the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to to those tenants? And the Jewish leaders replied, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time, again, they understand what's going on. They just don't understand their role and what's going on. This is a picture, this is a parable, a picture of what's about to happen. God's about to take, he's about to remove some of the things that he's given to Israel. and He's going to give them to the church, to these people who, are follow, who accept Jesus and follow after him. Some of the privileges and the rights of, that Israel had as God's chosen people. He's about to say, this isn't happening y'all have had thousands of years and there's not been any fruit there's not been fruit from this and so I'm withdrawing that from you and I'm conferring that on the church on people who accept my son who accept Jesus and follow after him they don't get who he's talking about so he follows up verse 42 have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone your translation may say cornerstone either one is fine. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. So there's that idea, taking this away from you, Jewish leaders, given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables. They knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. So a couple of things from that last section. One thing you see, God expects us to produce fruit. We talked about that last week. That's John. He says, I'm going to give this kingdom to people who will produce its fruit. There's this expectation there. Um, John fifteen one through 8, the idea if we're connected, if we remain, if we abide, if we stay plugged into Jesus, we will produce fruit. It's a guarantee. It's not, it's not a commission to go out and try to perform it's not a call to feel this pressure of I've got to produce in order to demonstrate and prove that I'm a Christian it's none of that it's it's a John 15 1 through 8 read it it's a guarantee if you stay connected to him there will be fruit in your life because that's what he does he produces fruit through everyone who remains or abides in him and so you, again you don't need to feel this as pressure to go out and do anything you just need to hear it as this He's looking for fruit, and as you stay connected, you will produce it. I've been accused in the past of leaning a little too hard towards what we have to do and responsibility and work and all of those things. So hear me say this. I'm not saying you earn your salvation at all. Identity precedes activity, but activity always flows from identity. Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. That's an identity statement from the father to the son before Jesus has done anything. And then Jesus proceeds and has three years of very fruitful, very productive ministry. There's an identity statement that's firmly rooted in the grace and the heart and the love of God. And so for you, son or daughter, your identity in Christ is based on, his, on the father's adoption of you as a son or a daughter. It's not, he picked you, you didn't pick him. That's what it means to be adopted into his family. So identity, that's this gracious adoption of us into the family of God. And from that identity, because I'm a son and I get that, then I live my life in a certain way. Then there are good works for me to do. There's fruit for me to produce. There's activity that comes out of that. If I say I'm a son, and I recognize I've been adopted by God, and there's no shift in my life. There's no fruit that's coming from me. There's no, there's no difference. You've got to wonder, has anything really changed in me? Do I really get what it means to be, to be adopted by the Lord? I, I would say probably not. So identity precedes activity all the, every time, and activity flows from identity every time. Second thing you see real quick is everyone at some point is going to have to deal with Jesus. He says, you accept me and you're good. That's um, Acts 4, 11 and 12 says he's the capstone. He's rejected by men and those who accept him. Everyone who calls on his name will be saved and there's no other name given under heaven by which men or women can be saved. So there's this idea, this one who's been rejected by the Jewish leadership has been chosen by God and anyone who accepts him will be saved. Read 1 Peter 2, 1-10 through 10, sometime this week. It goes into a lot of detail about what this, living, this cornerstone and how we're related to him and what that looks like for us and how all of those things play together. But the flip of that, just like in the parable of the vineyard owner, God is the landowner. He's patient, he's patient, he's patient, he's patient, he's patient. He sends messenger after messenger after messenger after messenger to the point of sending his son. There's this huge reservoir of patience and at some points it runs out and there are consequences for rejecting the son there's consequences for rejecting the message there's consequences for uh, treating the landowner this way and the same thing is true for everyone who's ever lived god is incredibly patient i think that's in second peter god is patient because he doesn't want anyone to perish his patience is kindness to us gives us space to respond to him, person after person, sign after sign, message after message, saying here, the invitation's on the table, will you accept it? But at some point, there's no more chances. When you quit breathing, there's no more chances. You continue to harden your heart, you continue to resist, you continue to reject. At some point, then the rock's going to fall on you, Then it's going to crush you, and it's not going to be good for you. So that's this, you see this picture here. Ultimately, everybody is going to have to deal with Jesus one way or the other. The things that I want us to focus on this morning is this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone or the capstone. And we're going to look at both. That word is actually um, headstone is what the word is. And so it can be translated either way and be equally true. So cornerstone is the first stone laid in a foundation and it becomes a reference point for everything else, for all the other stones laid. Uh, Colossians 1, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He's before all things. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So you get that idea, Jesus is first. And so for us, what I'm thinking of, cornerstone, Jesus is the cornerstone. What I want to know is, is he the reference point for my life? And so that's my question for you. Is he your reference point? Or is there something else that you uh, true your decisions to? Is there something else that you use as the, the... guidance for how you make decisions as a standard by which you evaluate whether something should or shouldn't be done. Uh, I started thinking about this last night and honestly it kept me awake. I couldn't go to sleep because this is, I struggle with this. There's some areas of my life where 100% I can say Jesus is the reference point. When it comes to truth, I don't have any issue. Jesus is the, rest, he is the truth and I don't have any issue saying he's the reference point for me for, for what is true and what is not true. Uh, I have a good friend, and we had lunch a couple of weeks ago. And he has a coworker who's just killing him. And so he was telling me about it. And in my opinion, listening, I'm saying your coworker is dead wrong. Like at least at least ninety percent of the issue between y'all is all on him. Maybe there's ten percent on you. And so in that moment, I'm having to fight speaking to him out of loyalty to him. He's one of my good friends. And so what I want to say to him is, well, here's what I think you should tell the guy. And kind of lay this thing out for him. In that moment, what's my reference point? Is my reference point loyalty, which is not a bad thing, or is my reference point Jesus, who says, you love your enemies, you pray for those who persecute you. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be great, you better serve. So is my, is my encouragement or my advice to him to say, here's how you put the guy in your place, because that's what I want to say to him from this place of loyalty and wanting to stand up for him, or to what do I say, you've got to figure out how to get low. You've got to figure out what it looks like to serve this guy, even literally if you've got to write him a check. If that's what it takes, you've got to take money out of your pocket if that's what it looks like in this situation. That's, a, that's hard. That's, what's, who's the reference point? I was um, talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago, a guy, he's in a, what I would call, it, he's in a pretty miserable marriage they're not getting along well and it doesn't look like it's it doesn't it's not equal it doesn't look like it's going to get resolved he wants to fix it she's not as interested in fixing it and so i'm i'm talking to him and i have pity or sympathy for him it's shocking i don't have that often so i'm feeling <laughs> this way and and i'm and in the moment it's like what's going to be my reference point is it going to be this this feeling that I have and go, oh, let's start looking for escape patches for this marriage. Let's see where the windows are that you can jump out of. Or is the reference point going to be Jesus and what he says? Listen, marriage is for life. And there's only a couple of reasons that you can get out, and I'm, this isn't one of them. And so I'm going to stand with you, and we're going to figure out what to do in the midst of this circumstance. You can. It's I begin to think through what does it look like for Jesus to be my reference point and it's the thing that becomes difficult for me is I can play those scenarios out a couple of steps and oftentimes him being the reference point means a little bit more suffering and a little bit more sacrifice and I don't know that I'm really that that I enjoy that necessarily it's a lot easier to let some other good things be my reference point than to say I'm going to let Jesus be my reference point and the way I relate with my family or the way I deal with money or the way I talk with people who come into the office or deal with work. Some of you may say at work business is business so that Jesus isn't your reference point then. Business is business becomes your reference point not him and you say well I can't function that way in my industry and that's like that's what I'm saying there's, there's sacrifice and there's this suffering piece that comes along could come along with saying Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the reference point, and everything else is trued off of him. Second thing is this idea of him being the capstone. This is a capstone. It's that middle rock there. It's the last stone placed in an arch that locks all the others in place, allows the arch to bear weight. So without the capstone, the whole thing crashes down. Uh, Colossians 1 says, uh, In Jesus all things hold together. Hebrews 1 says he sustains all things. For most of us as adults, the choice is, does Jesus hold th- all things together or do I hold all things together? Most of us don't look for somebody else to hold our lives together. Some people do. And uh, if that's the case, then uh, we need to talk and, and work that out. Because that's, that's not good for you and that's not good for whoever you're expecting to hold your life together. That's too much weight for anybody to try to hold somebody else's life together. So as adults, for most of us, it's Jesus or it's us. Uh, this, this is actually not as big an issue for me as the reference point thing. I was thinking about this. If you've done strength finders, uh, if, you're, if responsibility is in your top five, if that's, if that's a strength for you, then it could very well be that you're tempted to try to hold all things together. If you're a planner, then which is not bad, but if you're a planner, it could be that you're tempted to hold all things together. If you, on a bad day, somebody would say you're a bit controlling, then you may be tempted to try to hold all things together. There's that, there's that y'all kind of get a picture of that personality type that could be prone to saying, you know what, this is my responsibility. For some people, they try to hold all things together because they would say, I've been taking care of myself my whole life. I've never had anybody else take care of me, so I've had to learn how to do this thing. And that, again, like, there's that part that says, you know, you've survived and that's good. There's this other part that says, that's not your job and you can't handle it. He's the capstone. He's the only one that fits in the arch. You don't fit there. You're not strong enough. The whole thing is going to come crashing down if you try to put anything other than him in that capstone or that keystone place. So what's who is holding your life together? Is it you or is it God? I was thinking uh, some of your parents' schools about to start back. I was looking at Melody over here, she's a counselor, and I'm wondering how many phone calls she's going to get. Can you tell me where my child is? Who's, who's she got? What class? We're going to call her. What class is Nate in? Is she a good teacher? Is she too hard? Does she understand that boys are boys? And there's a little, you know, and, and I start trying to do this with her. Who's it, who else is in the class? You know, we don't really love that kid a whole lot. Is there anything that you can... And we start trying to do some of those things. You start screening your calls, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't know if that's me trying to hold things together or not. It could be. What's the motivation behind that phone call? Do I feel like it's my job to try to create this environment for my kid where I feel like he can thrive? And You want to say, that's good parenting. And To me, there's a line somewhere that can be crossed where I've gone from being a responsible parent to feeling like it's my job to hold everything together in my kid's life. And I don't know if you've crossed that or not. We were in Costa Rica a couple of weeks ago. This ministry runs all on faith and donations. They don't have any money. And they've got, they have a couple of acres, and they were looking at a couple of acres adjacent to their property. And they had a team down from the Midwest, I think Indianapolis or something, and they're walking this property. And they're saying, you know, what's, you know we're just praying and asking God to give us this. And there's a Korean-American eye doctor on the trip. And he has saved $300,000 so he can buy a house. And he's on this trip. And he decides my $300,000 is going to go here so you guys can buy this land. And I listen to that and think, uh uh, no way, dude. Like maybe to buy your second home, but you're, I don't, and you may say he's an eye doctor, so he's going to get it back. But for me, I'm going, $300,000 that you've been saving for however long for your house, and you're going to give it away to this ministry in Costa Rica that maybe you're going to get back to once a year. Who's holding things together for him with his finances? He gets it, doesn't he? He understands who takes care of him and his family. And it's not necessarily, it's not his paycheck. It's not being irresponsible. He just recognizes. Jesus holds all things together. He's got us. And so I can give this money away that I've been saving for this house. For you, it may be, uh, our finances are a source of division in your family. If you're married, is that something, is that you argue about that? Is that a constant source of frustration, whether you're married or you're single? It, it, do, do you um, do you worry about money? You constantly looking. Are we okay? Are we okay? Do you constantly feel pressure and stress about money? Maybe okay, or it may mean that you're trying to hold everything together. I had lunch with a guy this week, and he's in a job where you got to work nights or weekends. You can't. He can't make a dollar if he's not available nights and weekends. In his role, in particular, he's available all the time and we were talking about what does it look like to live a sustainable life when you have a job like yours in an industry like yours in economic times like these how do you do all that and so one of the questions becomes who who's holding your career together is it you or is it Jesus if you can't take a vacation if you have to answer the phone even when they called during dinner if you can't let it go to voicemail if you've got to check email 17 times before you go to bed at night, could very well be that you're trying to hold your career together. And you may say, you don't understand what I do. You don't understand how important it is or how much pressure there is. You don't understand the deadlines. And all of those things may be true. And what I would say back, God rested, so why don't you? At some point, we have to recognize he holds everything together. And if I am so afraid of disappointing somebody that I jump every time the phone rings and I'm available all of the time, I'm not doing you any good. I'm not doing me any good. And ultimately, I'm going to die. There's got to be some sense for me to say, God builds the house. There has to be some sense for me to say, Jesus holds all of this stuff together. I'm not. I'm not the most... It, crucial piece of the puzzle. He is the capstone, not me. And I've got a part to play 100%, and I want to play that as well as I can. But that's not my part. That's his part. So are there areas of your life where you're tempted to try to hold everything together instead of letting him hold it together? I don't know exactly what that may look like for you, but I would assume it's areas where you feel, if you're trying to think through, are there areas? I would say jump to the areas that keep you up at night. Jump to the areas that kind of cause a pit in your stomach or that cause you to have an ulcer or make you not eat, those types of things. I would jump to those areas and say, if that's what you're experiencing physically, then most likely that's because you're trying to be the capstone instead of letting him be that. This is what I don't want us to do. We're going to close. Boat's going to come back up. We're going to have some ministry teams up here in the corners. And I want you thinking through those two questions. Who's your reference point? and who's holding your life together. And if there's a place where you would say, Jesus isn't the reference point for me in this situation. He is in A, B, and C, but when it comes to D and E, I, I'm, I'm basing off something else. Let us pray with you and for you about that. When it comes to the idea of holding things together, if you would say, I actually do pretty good of trusting God in these areas, but when it comes to my children, or when it comes to money, or when it comes to my career, or my future, or whatever, I, I start gripping that thing pretty tight. And I try to hold that together. Let us pray with you and for you about that. There'll be some practical things that come out of that, for sure. There'll be some practical things the Lord will begin to lead you, and what does it look like for you to let him hold all things together? What does it look like for you to let him be the reference point? But for this morning, the biggest step is just acknowledging that's the case and repenting of that and, and then allowing us just to pray for God to direct you in new and fresh ways. You guys can stand I'm going to pray. Ministry teams if you come forward and then Bo will dismiss us when we're done. God we do thank you um, that you are, that your son, that Jesus is the cornerstone and he is the reference point for all of life and and if we don't If he's not for us, then everything else gets skewed. That's the deal. The cornerstone sets everything else. Everything else is laying down based off of it. And so if we're using anything other than Jesus as the reference point, we're going to wind up off base. So I pray you bring conviction into our hearts for the places, the relationships, the circumstances where you're not our cornerstone, where Jesus, you're not our reference point. And God, we thank you that your son holds all things together because honest, in our most honest moments, we would say we can't. We can't even come close. And we thank you that it's easy for you to hold all things together. We thank you that it doesn't keep you up at night to sustain all things by your powerful word. And So God, I pray for the men and women in this room who are prone to trying to be the capstone who are prone to trying to hold things together on their own, that you bring conviction into their hearts as well, and that they would repent, and they would know the freedom and the joy and the peace that comes from letting you be God instead of us. God, if there are any here this morning who would say, I'm like the first son. I've been resistant. I've been rejecting. I've been hard-hearted. God, I pray that they would hear you speaking to them saying, just have a change of heart, repent. Believe what I said about Jesus. Believe that he's here to save you, to rescue you, to redeem you, and to make you whole. God, I pray that they would hear that invitation and respond this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.